Good morning. My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. We're grateful that God's brought us together this morning to send under his word together. Uh, we are in a series called Life in the Spirit as a local church, looking particularly at the text of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, uh, looking at the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we've said uh, every week so far that the, the prominent promise and the pervading promise of the Old Testament is that God's Spirit would indwell his new covenant people. And as people that now live on this side of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, we are people whom God has poured out his Spirit upon. That's the marked difference between an old covenant believer, an old covenant member, and a new covenant member. That the new covenant members have God's Spirit upon them. And we've said that now for five weeks in a row. And today we finish uh, the first sort of introductory part of this sermon series and looking at the nature of love. Because we've said that before we look at giftedness, before we talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we need to talk about something else first. Because if we miss the nature of love in our community, love between one another, then we miss the whole thing. Because the mark of a supernaturally changed heart is not giftedness. The mark of a supernaturally changed heart is not giftedness. The mark of a supernaturally changed heart is love. Love for God and love for each other. This morning we finish 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll read from verses 8 through 13. And bear with me, I'm a little under the weather today, but uh, God is faithful. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... Then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. We long to see a glimpse of our Lord Jesus. Would you show him to us by the power of your Holy Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Like anything uh, anybody says is informed by uh, their teachers, and I have many teachers, but two in particular have massively informed this sermon, and that would be Jonathan Edwards and C.S. Lewis. So anything good that I say probably came from them. So here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to 
unpack the text for us, and then I'm going to apply it to us. Going to tell us what it means, and then tell us how it applies to our lives. So, first, uh, the first thing that Paul is doing for us here is he's giving us three different descriptions of what heaven is like. He's giving us three different descriptions of what heaven is like. He says it like this. He says when perfection comes, he says when we're face to face, and he talks about love. The final word of the passage is love. Now, What's interesting is that some will actually use this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and particularly verse 10, to say that the spiritual gifts have ceased now. They'll use this passage to say that the, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit no longer are operative in the church today. Because they'll say, verse 10 says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And it's true. That Paul is describing a time when the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, namely in the form of prophecies, tongues, and knowledge, will pass away. And the way that people use this text to say that they've passed away now is they say that the perfect, when the perfect comes, what the perfect is, is the perfect is the Bible. In other words, they'll say that because we have the Bible, because we have this book, we no longer need tongues and prophecy. So goes the argument. But look at the context here. Paul is using three different illustrations or three different descriptions to talk and describe about the same thing. He's talking about the same thing three different times. He says, when perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When we are face to face, when we are in the midst and in the face of love. He's not describing a multitude of things at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 here. He's describing one thing and he's giving three different aspects to what it looks like. So let's look at them. Let's look at those three things. First, he says when the perfect comes, or in the Greek when the teleon comes. And that word it's very important to know this word because that word teleon or telos simply means aim, or it means what something's intended for, or it means where something is going towards. Oftentimes, if you ever looked at my sermon notes, I'll oftentimes put a sentence at the top of them and I call the telos sentence. I don't read it very often, but that telos sentence reminds me what the aim and purpose of this sermon is. It reminds me what the aim and purpose of a particular text of scriptures for. What's its purpose? What's its aim? What's its design? And so Paul uses that word here. He says, when the teleon comes, when the aim of things comes, when the purpose of things comes, the partial will pass away. The thing for which it was made, the thing for which it was designed, the thing that you were designed for. When the thing that you were designed for comes, the partial will pass away. When the thing that you are longing for, when the thing that you are yearning for comes, 
the partial will pass away. Let me try to illustrate this. A few years back at the Oregon Zoo, uh, they opened a new, uh, what do you call those, attraction? It's kind of weird to talk about animal cages like that, but they ordered an exhibit. They opened a new exhibit, and that was the California condor. And they have this cage that's maybe, you know, a couple thousand square feet, and it's maybe, you know, 40, 50 feet high. And in there, they have these massive California condors. And the California condor has a wingspan of 10 feet. And the California condor has the ability to soar up to 15,000 feet in the air. That's 4,000 feet taller than Mount Hood. My wife and I, when we first were married, we lived in Central California. And there's a place between Monterey and Big Sur. It's this beautiful drive down Highway 1. There's this bridge there called Bixby Bridge. And California condors live there. And these massive birds soar. And they fly high, high in the air. They weren't made for... They weren't designed for. Their aim wasn't to live in the Oregon Zoo in a couple thousand feet. If you've seen these animals and the way they were made to soar and the way they were made to fly, you would know that's not their telos. The teleon, the aim of the California condor is not the Oregon Zoo. Or maybe you've seen... uh, pictures or videos of a whale that has been beached and it's flopping around in certain ways it's 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 it has reflexes that don't correspond to its present reality and that's what Paul's saying about you and me Paul is saying that you and I are like a caged condor Paul is saying that you and I are like whales on a beach who have reflexes that do not correspond to the present reality. We have desires, we have reflexes, we have impulses that don't correspond to this current world that we live in. Because it's not the aim. It's not the teleon. This is not the place that we were ultimately designed for. Like what? You ask, what kinds of reflexes and desires do we have that don't correspond with our present reality? I'll give you a few. We long to never die. We long to never die. We have reflexes in us that say that that death is not part of life, that we long to not experience loss. The next time... You're in a funeral, and you hear someone say that death is just part of life. Don't believe it. It's not true. You were designed to live forever, to walk with God forever. But death entered this world because of sin. Death is part of this world because of sin, because sin entered into the world. But it's not the initial design. It's not the initial aim. It's not the initial tell us. You were made to walk with God and live with him forever. And we're falling apart. Our bodies as we know it are falling apart. No one longs for their body to fall apart. 
No one longs for their body to break down and die. One thing that we have a reflex for. We have a reflex to live forever. Second, we want to be loved unconditionally. We have a reflex that desires to be loved and accepted and embraced unconditionally. And we can't experience that. This side of eternity. We can't experience love unconditional excitement of eternity. Three, we long for relationships and love that will last forever. We long for relationships and love that will last forever. The greatest thing in our lives is relationships. The greatest thing in our lives are my wife, my children, my family, my friends, you. The greatest things that we experience and they won't last forever. They break down, they fall apart. We are like caged condors and beached whales with reflexes and longings and desires that this world can't ultimately satisfy. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, if we find ourselves with a desire... That nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it and to suggest to us the real thing. If that's true, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or never be unthankful for these earthly blessings and on the other never to mistake them for something else of which they are simply a copy, an echo, or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find until after death. You were made for another world. Your telos your teleon, your aim, your design is for another world. You were made for another place. C.S. Lewis, again, will say that all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. Everything else is that which we pursue other than God to make us happy. And that's the first description. That's the first description of what this place called heaven, this other world, is like. It is the place for which you were designed. It is the place that your entire being is aiming towards and longing for. And on this side, I'm talking to my wife about this early this morning. This might be, in my opinion the greatest argument or apologetic for the existence of God. It might be the greatest apologetic or argument for the existence of God, that there is something so deep in us, something so deep that we yearn for and long for. The only other option, I think, is that that longing, that yearning is simply a fraud. It's a longing and a yearning and desire that can never be satisfied if God does not exist. But could it be, friend, That God has put that longing, that desire inside you because he's made you that way. He's designed you with an aim and a purpose to know 
him and see him and delight in him. Which brings us to our second description. The face. The face. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I have been fully known. You really see what it says there. It says, I shall fully know. It doesn't say, and then I shall also be known. It says that even now, in the present, in the moment, you are fully known. This is not just describing some kind of ethereal experience. It's describing a person. People know people. People know people. Things don't know people. People know people. I will fully know even as I have been fully known. You are fully known right now by a person. There is a person who knows every single last bit about you right now. You don't even know yourself to that degree. But there is a person, there is someone who knows you intimately and perfectly and completely. And there is coming a day when you will see this person face to face. That's the description here that Paul gives us of what heaven is like. That you will be face to face with the person that knows you completely and fully. And that person and that man is the man Jesus Christ. And the description here is what theologians have called the beatific vision. To see God. To see God, the God-man Jesus Christ, face to face is a description of heaven. To see Jesus Christ as he, who, who he fully and actually is Face to face is a description of heaven. John Owen, theologian, said it this way. That God in his immense essence is currently invisible to our corporal eyes and will be so until eternity and also incomprehensible into our minds. For nothing can perfectly comprehend that which is infinite, because itself is infinite. Wherefore the blessed and the blessing will have the vision of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Nothing is more fully and clearly revealed in the gospel that unto us Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. That he is the character and person of the Father, so that when we see him, we see the Father also. That we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in his face alone. The point is this. Is that the face of God, the face of Jesus Christ, the face of the man Jesus Christ, is the soaring skies that our caged condor desires need. Beholding God and seeing God is the answer to the aim for which you were made. These longings, these reflexes, these desires find their satisfaction in beholding and gazing upon the man Jesus Christ. That's the description of heaven. The description of heaven is such that all these desires that we have find their satisfaction when we behold Jesus Christ. That we will see him face to face. Now we see him through a mirror dimly, it says. 
It's glimpses. It's sometimes it's foggy. It's like opaque glass in a bathroom. That's what it's like. It's glimpses. But one day we will behold him face to face. The entire, well, a lot of the story of the Old Testament is the pursuing of the face of God. A lot of the way that the Old Testament story is unraveled for us is the pursuit of the face and presence of God. The psalmist will say in Psalm 16 that you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Remember Moses' desire in Exodus 33. Moses' desire was to see God. He said in Exodus 33, Please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim to you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on him who I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place By me, where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. That's the dilemma that we're talking about. Moses longs to see the face of God. He longs to gaze upon and behold the glory of God. But therein lies the problem. Because God replies to him, you cannot see my face, and live. And so he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he passes by and a a mere shadow of his glory is revealed to Moses. He sees through a mirror dimly. And even that shadow, even that just tiny glimpse upon Moses causes his face to shine like the sun. Even just a glimpse of it of the glory of God, the thing which Moses and you and I were made for, his teleos, his aim, his purpose, his design, was to behold the face of God. But he can't. He can't. Because to gaze upon him means his sure death. So what's the answer? The very thing we need, we can't have. The very thing that we need will obliterate us. The very thing we need will consume us. That's why that place in Matthew chapter 17 of the transfiguration is so wonderful. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The point here, the Bible could not be more clear here. The Bible could not be more clear here. What Peter's impulse to do is to make tents, is to make a tabernacle, is to make a place so that there's a mediation between God and man. Peter is aware that the glory of God is now in front of him. The glory of God is being shown in the face of Jesus Christ, this man. The glory of God, they're on a mountain again. 
Just like Moses was on a mountain in Exodus chapter 33 and asked to see the glory of God, Peter's on a mountain again. And now the glory is not just emanating from somewhere else. The glory is emanating from the face of Jesus Christ himself. And, Mo, and Peter's first impulse is, we need to make some tents. There needs to be some sacrifices made. Because I just beheld the glory of God. I'm about to be obliterated. He's scared for his life. He's worried for his life. That's why he says, we need to make some tents ASAP. There needs to be some sacrifices made now. There needs to be some mediation between God and man. But the mediation that needs to happen between God and man is the person of Jesus Christ. The very glory, the very longing that their hearts desire is Jesus Christ. And the very way that the chasm of sin, the very way that they can now behold it and see it and enjoy him is the man Jesus Christ. He's both. He's the one who their hearts long for, and he's the one that makes them a way for them to truly and actually enjoy him. Every other time people begin to see the glory of the Lord, they despise themselves. Remember Job, it says, I heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you, and I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Or Isaiah. When Isaiah gets the a glimpse of God, he says, and above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he gets a mere shadow, a mere glimpse, he sees his unworthiness to even behold it. The thing that he needs The thing that you need, the thing that I need, is to behold the glory of God. But our sin has kept it from us. But the man Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ, is whom we behold the face of the glory of God and in whom has made a way that we can rejoice in it, celebrate it, enjoy it and not be consumed to the point of death. Paul will bring this together for us in a beautiful description in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's where you're headed. Your aim your telos, your design, your reflexes, your desires were made to find their satisfaction in the person of Jesus Christ, in his face. And it's only because of the gospel that you can now do it. The good news of the gospel is that your penalty for sin was paid for by Jesus Christ. You should be abolished and banished from the presence of God forever. 
But because Jesus Christ lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you deserve to die and ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, if you have faith in him, if you trust in him, if you put your trust and hope, you penned of your sins and you've turned to him and to him alone for the salvation of your soul, then you will behold his glory forever. You will behold his glory forever by his grace alone. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, let me just plead with you that your heart, you know it. If you look at the inner crevices of your heart, you know that you long for something that this world cannot give you. You were designed and made for it, and every one of your pursuits has been to try to fill that void, and that's what sin is. Sin is to try to satisfy ourselves with something other than God, to turn in rebellion against Him and instead seek to satisfy those longings and those desires with the things we pursue and not from God. But God has made a way that you can be right with Him again. He's made a way that you can be right with Him again by repenting of your sin, which just means to turn Turn from all those ways which we seek our pleasure, our happiness, our satisfaction in head. Instead, turn to him and turn to him in faith and trust and say, God, I need you. Satisfy the longings of my heart. You are God. You are the king, and I am not. And if you do that, if you rest in his love, if you trust in his love, he will save you. And he will bring you to be with him for all eternity to your telos, to your aim, the thing that you were made for. One more C.S. Lewis quote. He says, God says, give me all of you. I don't want a little bit of your time or a little bit of your talents or money or your work. I want you, all of you. I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but I have come to kill it. No half measures will do. I don't only want to prune a branch here or there, but I rather I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants, all of your wishes, all of your dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me and I will make you a new self in my image. Give me yourself in exchange I will give you myself. My will will become your will and my heart will become your heart. And third, the third description here. The final word of the passage is love. The description of what heaven is like is love. Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote a sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. And if anybody wants some extra credit this afternoon, I printed out five copies of it, and they're sitting right up here. I can't read it without being brought to tears every single time. And I've read it 15, 20, 30 times. And I'm just going to read an excerpt from it because no one can say it better than Jonathan Edwards did in his description of what heaven must be like because heaven, he says, is a world of love. Heaven is a world of love because God who is love is there. God who is love has made his eternal abode to be in this chamber, this world, this place of love. There dwells God, the Father, and the Son, 
who are united in infinitely dear and incomprehensible mutual love. There dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies, and he's the Father of love. And who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. There dwells Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Love. Who so loved the world that he shed his blood, and he poured out his soul unto death for it. And there dwells the Spirit, the Mediator, by whom all God's love is expressed to the saints. By whom the fruits of it have been purchased, and through whom they are communicated, and through whom love is imparted to the hearts of all the church. There Christ dwells in both his natures is human and divine, sitting with his Father on the same throne. There is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of divine love, in whom the very essence of God, as it were, all flows out or is shed abroad in the hearts of every member of his church. There in heaven is this fountain of love, and there this eternal three-in-one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to them. There this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory, in beams of love. And there the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight. Enough for all to drink in, enough for all to swim in. Yea, so as the overflow of the world, as it were, with a deluge of love. That's what that world will be like. That's what that world will be like. The overflow, a deluge of love. So that's the description. So let's apply it to us. Let's apply it to us in a few ways. Next week, we'll actually start getting into the gifts and describing them and learning how to apply them. And it's been good for us as a local church, as a community of people, to first understand that the nature of all spiritual giftedness is to love one another, to build each other up. God's aim and purpose for this church is that we would be built up in love for God and built up in love for each other. So the first application, you said it, I think, every week, but everything else will stop. Prophecies will stop. Tongues will stop. Words of knowledge will stop, but love will remain forever. There's one thing that you can do now that you will do for all eternity, and that's love each other. All your other spiritual giftedness will go away. That doesn't diminish its value or importance on this side, but it does bring into light the massive significance of loving somebody of preferring somebody, of seeing someone else built up. Everything else stops, but love will remain. Second, I don't fully know what it means that we will know even as we are fully known. But I know that it means at least this. That right now, there is someone who fully and completely knows everything about you and loves you unconditionally. 
He knows every thought that you've had. He knows everything that you've done. He knows every unkind word that's come out of your mouth. He fully knows you and he loves you unconditionally. The love that you long for, you have. So I've been asking myself this week, why? Why does Paul say that phrase in this context? I think he's saying something like this. It's like you have a hundred million dollars in the bank and someone's asking you to borrow five bucks. It's like you have a hundred million dollars in the bank and someone's asking you to borrow five dollars. In other words, we can take a risk and love somebody else because of the massive love with which we've been loved. We can take a risk. We can take a risk and forgive someone. We can take a risk and love someone who's wronged us, who slighted us, who said things about us. We can choose to not retaliate. We can choose to not repay that evil with evil. We can choose to repay that evil with good because you've got a million, a hundred million dollars in the checking account. You can take a risk. And it's going to be okay. Because all the love, all the satisfaction, all the acceptance that you long for is already yours. It's yours. It's yours. He fully knows you. And he fully accepts you. Let that sink in. Let it trickle down. Now as it trickles down, let it affect the way that you actually can love another human being. It is so hard. This description of love in this passage has been so hard for so many of us, including myself in this church. Because it does not oftentimes describe us. But you have a hundred million, you have a hundred billion, you have a hundred trillion dollars in that checking account because of the love of God. And it's okay to take a risk. Because that which is yours will never be taken from you because it's a gift of grace to you. Third, there's a description that C.S. Lewis gives in, um, in loving other people. And in loving other people, we see different and more full facets of God's love even for us. The famous story is C.S. Lewis had two good friends. We called Ronald, well, he didn't call them that. Their mom called him that, and he called him that because their mom called him that. But Ronald and Charles, nobody gets what I just said. That's okay. C.S. Lewis's two good friends were Ronald and Charles. And Charles, um, when Charles passes away, C.S. Lewis notices something. He says that when Charles died, he lost part of, part of Ronald. Because when the three of them would hang out, there was aspects of Ronald's personality that only Charles could bring out. That when certain stories were told, certain inside jokes were told, there was part of Ronald that would blossom and come out. So when Charles dies, he doesn't just lose Charles, he loses that part of Ronald which only Charles could bring out. And that's true. It's the nature of love and friendship. 
There's a nature of love and friendship that when we love each other and are in relationship with one another, there's a compounding effect that it has. There's a compounding effect that it has in our lives. There's a way that when I hang out with Matt and other people there, there's parts of Matt that come out that other people bring out. And there's a way that I see the love of God in him that maybe I wouldn't if the others weren't there. Because love in its nature is abounding. Love multiplies. Love increases. Love never fails. So as we pursue these spiritual gifts together as a local church, let us remember that the greatest miracle that could ever happen among us is that we would love each other. We would build each other up. And we can do that because we have that bank account that's a hundred million, a hundred billion, a hundred trillion dollars full of the love of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can love one another. We will one day pass into the presence of the fullness of God. We will behold his face His glory and His love will abound into our hearts. And that first moment of heaven will be like no other moment that we've ever experienced on this side of eternity. Find your rest in Him. Rest in His great love for you. Let us pray. Father, thank You for the love that You've shown us in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that as we come now to the Lord's table, our hearts would rest and our hearts would look to the love that is ours because of the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your love towards us. Thank you for the gospel. Help us to celebrate it now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.